0: Welcome to the Littlestown Chapel podcast. Make sure to check us out on the web at littlestownchapel.org. Now, we hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott Morgan. Well, after a week like this week, it feels like God's not in control. There are times where you just wonder why these bad things happen, why these crazy things happen. And it's not just because a beloved church member and friend, fellow servant of the Lord, has passed away. But when you look at the shootings that have taken place, when we look at the political unrest in Washington, when we think about all the the environmental and and, uh, uh, things involved in our climate, the weather, uh, earthquakes, wars, all this stuff, is God really working? Is he really moving? Is God really in control? And the answer to that question that all of us think at one time or another is, yes, he is in control. He truly is in control. In fact, he's on the move. He's working in our world today. And one of the reasons that I know this and I feel confident in telling you this and reminding you of this is because when you read the last chapters of the Bible, you know very clearly that God is in control. Have you ever had that experience? Maybe you were reading a novel, those of you who like to read novels, you read those big thick novels, maybe on vacation at the beach or something like that, and you're going along, it's really exciting, it's just like the people told you it would be, it was really exciting, it's got your attention, all this stuff, and, and, and all of a sudden there are these plot developments, and you're just upset like, well what's gonna happen to that character, and how are they gonna figure this out? And so you cheat like I do, and, you kind of look at that last, maybe that last chapter and read a little bit. You're not really supposed to do that, but you do that anyway. And you kind of read a little bit of the last chapter. And you go, whew, okay, well, that guy's there, and that guy's there, and she's there, and that's there, and they got that all. All right, so I can relax, and I'll just enjoy the book now. Okay. The thing is, God has done that for us. God has done that for us in that he's given us a book of the Bible, the very last book of our Bible, that tells us that Jesus wins. It tells us clearly, emphatically, that no matter how crazy this world gets, no matter how bad things are, the circumstances that we have, no matter how terrible evil seems to be growing, how, how fierce its opposition, how terrible it is, how destructive it is, and it seems like evil is becoming worse and worse and worse in our world. We see it all over the place. No matter how terrible it is, just when you think it can't get any worse, Jesus comes and Jesus wins. Now, last fall, when we started our church year, back in September, when we kind of reset the clock here at the church and come up with a new theme for the year, we, we, as we were thinking and praying as a staff, it became obvious to us that, you know, we're, we're in this day and day out, but it's obvious that God is on the move here. God is working in our church and he's working in our community. He's working in other churches in the community. So I'm just excited to be working with a God that's on the move. And that's what we've been focusing on this year. And one of the things that we wanted to emphasize is that, well, what do you do when you're living in this world that's so discouraging and it maybe doesn't look like God is on the move? What do you do? You go to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, and you see God's end game. You see how God wins the victory finally over all evil. How all the enemies, sin, death, and the devil are put in their place and destroyed. And how God's kingdom comes in all its fullness and power and how everything that's broken is mended and how everything that's upside down and wrong is set right back up and made right. How there's a healing not only of individual human beings but of families and communities and countries and this world and this very universe that we live in, how God fixes it all and makes it right with new heavens and new earth and new Jerusalem and all these wonderful things with Jesus Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords and so we, we, we see that. And. As we were studying all that last fall, we, we, we saw that, that the book of Revelation, that I need to admit that, you know, we've, we've said this before, but, you know, Revelation is the one book of the Bible everybody in the church wants the pastor to preach on because they don't understand it. And none of the pastors I know want to preach it because they don't understand it. And so it's just, it's very complicated, okay? We acknowledge that, that Revelation is a very difficult book to understand. It's not that the vocabulary is hard. It's just... Where do you draw the line between language that's obviously very literal and needs to be taken for face value, like you'd read the newspaper or listen to a newscast on television and take it word for word and take it in a very literal way? And and what about all that language that sounds very symbolic? And and, and sometimes the line between those two is kind of blurry, like when is it symbolic and when is it to be taken in a very literal way? How do, how do you decide that? And that's where Christians have been arguing about the book of Revelation for the last 2,000 years, ever since it was written. It's been very difficult to determine that. And I need to say that to you up front. The chances are that as we go through these passages together, I'm going to give you straight what I think it says and what I think it means and how we should interpret it. And some of you probably won't agree with me. And I just want to let you know I still love you. <laughs> and I hope... And I hope I hope that you will still love me, okay? Uh, at the same time, I will try to also share with you what some other Christians who love the Bible, who, who are loyal, devoted followers to Jesus, they have trusted Him alone for salvation, they believe that Jesus is coming back, they might not agree with what I say or do, and, and, and that's okay, I still love them too. And we can learn from each other in the process. So I, I just, I, before you throw rotten tomatoes at me, I just want you to... I just want you to know where I'm, where I'm coming from on this, okay? So, when we started reading through Revelation back in September, and uh, actually in October, we saw John in chapter 1 having this vision of Jesus in glory, and he comes across, he's represented as this all-powerful judge of the universe, this glorified, terrifying vision of Jesus in all His appearance. Not meek and lowly Jesus who's taking care of the sheep. Not humble Jesus who's been beaten up and crucified but Jesus in His power and glory and it's awe-inspiring and terrifying at the same time. And that Jesus tells John to write for Him a a set of letters to a set of churches, seven churches that represent all the churches that have ever been. And as John pins these letters from Jesus to these churches, there are two big characteristics of the letters, all the letters. And and the first is is that you've got to love Jesus most of all. You love him first and foremost. You love him above everything else. And you need to understand the reason why you need to love him that way above everything else is because there are two big threats the church is facing. There's an internal threat where you'll give in and sacrifice your loyalty to Jesus because of idolatry. It's just too easy to go along to get along, so we'll make all these compromises, and we'll choose to try to find our own satisfaction and fulfillment through serving our own idols. And then there's an outward threat, and that is the issue of persecution, both religious and and from the state a persecution that would try to push us away from Christ, make us deny Christ and reject him. And in all seven of those letters, the constant theme is love Christ first of all, love him most of all. If you love him most of all, you're an overcomer. He's the God who's pursued you. He's the one knocking at the door. He's the one asking you to let him in because he's the one who has saved you and will sustain you no matter the opposition that you face. And as we got out of chapter 3 and stepped into chapters 4 and 5, John's vision shifted from the churches in these letters and Jesus in his glorified state. Instead, he sees the throne room of heaven, the headquarters of the universe, and there's Almighty God in His glory. Flashes of lightning, thundering, smoke, all this brilliant color and light and sounds, and there's God seated on His throne. He's surrounded by these these fantastic creatures, these four living creatures that are guarding His glory. And they are surrounded by a group of 24 elders, these high and holy angels that are leading in the worship of Almighty God there. And those angels are surrounded by another group of angels that are multitudes upon multitudes, hundreds and hundreds of millions of angels surrounding the throne. And they're all worshiping Him and they're all honoring Him. And John is just reveling in this this display of God's glory and His control and His sovereign majesty and all of that. And and then there's a question asked. And the question is, who's worthy to take the scroll, the rolled-up book that's in the hand of the one who's seated on the throne? And, and they look at all the angels, they looked at all the living creatures, they looked at John, they looked at everybody else, they looked at the one that was asking the question, and the answer is no one's worthy, and John breaks down and starts crying. He's sobbing over this status, that no one is worthy to take that scroll and open it up. What is the scroll? The scroll is God's plan, the divine plan for ending life on earth The life on earth, the the human sinful order of life on earth. Destroying human sin and the corruption of this world. Destroying all that evil. That's God's plan. it's, It's all written out there. And John is just utterly sad because who's going to finish history? Who's going to bring about the victory that we need? Who's going to be the one to overcome evil? And there's no one worthy. And he's overwhelmed and very distraught by that. And as he's sobbing and crying there, one of the angels puts his hand on John's shoulder. He says, look, you don't need to be crying about this because there is somebody worthy. The lion of the tribe of Judah has triumphed. And he is worthy to take that scroll and open its seals and read the plan and execute the plan of God for overthrowing the sinful world order that we're in. He's worthy to do that. And when John wipes his tears and looks up, he doesn't see a roaring lion ready to pounce and grab the scroll. He sees a lamb, a little lamb, a baby sheep that's been slaughtered. It's dead, but back to life. And John realizes, like you and I as readers would realize, that as we compare Scripture, we see that that lion and that lamb are none other other than Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The Lion of the tribe of Judah who also was the Lamb who gave His life on our behalf on the cross so we could be saved from our sins and forgiven. And by His resurrection, He has won the right. He has been counted worthy, fully qualified to take that scroll and execute the justice of overthrowing the evil of this, this universe and making righteousness prevail for the glory and honor of God. And that's where we ended. It was like a real cliffhanger. And then we had Christmas, okay? So let's jump back in and pick it up in chapter 6. And as we look at chapter 6 and chapter 7, we're going to see what Christ does with that scroll. What is he doing with this rolled up piece of parchment that has the plan of God fully detailed in all of its leaves. and, And it's rolled up tightly, it's sealed with clay or wax or something like that, with the the impression of the one in authority that owns the scroll stamped in it, and and it's sealed shut in a complete way, and it's now going to be opened by the one who is worthy to hold the scroll and read it, and that's Jesus himself. And what you're going to see, and what you and I are gonna witness as we read through chapter six and chapter seven, we're gonna see that Christ is in command. He is in command. In fact, the future unfolds at Christ's command. Do you get that? The future that's coming about, it unfolds at the command of Christ. In other words, future is not accidental. It is not something man made. It is not something that some bureaucrat or some committee in Washington or New York or Moscow or Beijing has determined. It's not the party plan or agenda of any political organization of human beings. This is the plan of God and Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, is the one who is worthy to take that scroll and open it up and execute it. The future unfolds at the command of Christ. And we're going to see how it unfolds as we watch Jesus open this scroll and break these seals to do that, and what happens as it occurs. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard the four living creatures say, one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer And when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, "'Come!' And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. And when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, "'Come!' And I looked, and behold, a black horse." And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. And when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. This is God's word. We're going to continue reading in just a moment, but we'll stop here for now. So the scene is set... Jesus has taken the scroll and he one by one begins peeling off the seals and opening the scroll. And as the seals are broken, the scroll unfolds and the story of the plan of God to overthrow human wickedness and sin in the universe is revealed. And we see these four horses come galloping out. And this is where that phrase that you've heard, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, that's where this came from. And John sees in this vision, he sees these four riders on horses galloping out through the vision. The first one is white. This rider is wearing a crown. He carries a bow, probably arrows as well. And he's here to conquer and he's conquering. And it's talking about military conquest. Uh, countries expanding their borders by taking over land from others. Some people, as they've read this and studied it, well, that sounds like Jesus when he returns. He's coming back as King of kings and Lord of lords. He's dressed in white. It must be Jesus because he's wearing wearing white robes. And I think it's better to not see it in a specific way that way because Christ returns at the end of the judgments we read in Revelation. Some have said, well, this is a counterfeit Christ. This is the Antichrist who's come, and that may be. It may be. It also may be just the general idea of the wars and rumors of wars that Jesus is talking about how countries will not be satisfied with their own territory and their own resources and will seek to conquer and take over the lands of other people. So this increase of warfare and terrorism and such is what's talking about here to conquer and to be be conquering. As a consequence of that, the second rider who's riding a fiery red horse and who has a large sword, he's bringing warfare to the earth. He's taking away peace. He's causing even more fighting and violence and bloodshed and terrorism as a result of this desire for political gain and acquisition of territory. There's the violence and the warfare that comes because of that as a consequence of of that rider coming forth and the increase of violence and warfare. And not only warfare, but civil war in particular. Even countries that are stable and secure breaking down and having internal conflicts, this increase of of warfare in that way. There's a third horse that comes forth, the black horse. The color of mourning, sackcloth and, and mourning and sadness. And this horse comes riding forth and instead of a sword, He's carrying a pair of scales. And you, you, some of you are saying, what, a bathroom scale? Is he on a diet? No, he's not on a diet. He's, he's carrying the scales like you see when you see a statue of Lady Justice. You know, if you've ever been to a courthouse or watched a crime show or something like that, you know, Lady Justice standing there, she's blindfolded, she's got a sword in one hand, and she's carrying a set of scales, you know, the balances where they weigh things. That's, that's what this man, this rider is carrying. A set of scales like that. And what is he measuring out? He's measuring out the the food that's available during this time. And there's somebody that shouts out, kind of narrating what John is watching. And the the person that's narrating says, Okay, I'll sell you a quart of wheat for a denarius. You know, oh, okay. Uh, I wonder how much that costs. Denarius is how much money you would earn in a day if you were just a common laborer, minimum wage. So that kind of money you would earn it would buy you a quart of wheat. I don't know how much that is, that's not a lot by volume. But they would say that's, that's how much a normal person would eat during the day. About a quart of wheat. You know, grind it up, make flour and have bread and stuff. Barley was a little cheaper. So they'll sell three quarts of barley for a denarius. Denarius, uh, barley was not as nutritious, it didn't taste as good. I mean, people still eat it, but it was something that maybe a very poor family would use to feed the family. So, so he's saying it'll take you all day to earn enough money to feed yourself. It'll take you all day to earn enough money to feed your small family if you just buy the barley. In other words, food's going to be scarce. It's going to be expensive because you're just working, working hours, long hours, 8, 10, 12 hours a day just to earn a little bit of food to feed you for that day. And he says, don't harm the oil and the wine because those are going to be scarce as well. He's talking about famine. A fourth rider comes forth. This is a pale horse. And by pale, it's talking about a green color, like a yellow-green, the color of grass. And he's saying that this rider comes forth and he's not carrying anything because his name is Death. And as Death rides his pale green horse, gallops out in the vision there's a guy walking behind him, marching behind him, and his name is Hades. And as death kills people, Hades is picking up the corpses and gathering them up because he's the grave, the place of the dead. And it says that Hades and death are given authority over a quarter of the earth's population. If this all took place today... There are about 7 billion people living on planet Earth, a little more than that. A quarter of that is over a a billion and a half people. You're talking about the population of United States of Canada, Central America, South America, and Europe. All those people dead in this span period, this time span. The violence, the suffering, the horror of this time in the future of God's judgment coming forth. And the other thing that's interesting about these four horsemen and the catastrophes that they bring, you know, the, the, the warfare, the sword, the, the sickness and disease that come with the pestilence, that's literally the word death, but it's the idea of plagues. The wild animals are, are killing them. The other catastrophes are killing them. The famine's killing them. All this suffering, all this death, a quarter of the earth's population dying during this time period, These four riders are all human-made things. These are all things we inflict upon each other. The warfare, the consequences of the warfare, the collateral damage from the warfare. Those are all things that are humans inflicting this suffering upon each other. God is saying, look, I'm going to judge this world... I'm going to fight against and overturn human sin and the sinful world order. I'm going to overturn it all and I'm going to use your own sin. It's going to come full circle and come back to bite you. You choose to live your life without me. You choose to reject me. Then I'm going to give you up to your own devices and your warfare and your violence and your death and your famine and your disease. It's all going to come back on you because of the choices that you have made. This is part of God's plan in bringing His judgment, pouring out His wrath, His holy anger upon sinful humanity. Now it says in the next verse, verse 9, when Jesus opened the fifth seal, John says, I saw under the altar in the throne room of heaven, the temple of God, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. A consequence of all this violence and warfare is that people who are earth dwellers, people who are rejectors of God, and that's what that little phrase, those who dwell upon the earth are the earth dwellers, in Revelation that kind of becomes like a code word, a, a, a synonym for the idea of people who are idolaters and rejectors of God. They're earthbound, they're earth-focused, they're not willing to humble themselves to God, they're focused purely on the earth, only on the earth, and God is judging them because they have rejected Him. And they in turn take their anger and wrath and they throw it against those who choose to follow Christ during this great tribulation period. They begin to oppose those who have followed Christ and trust in Him. And so those that are have died their souls are in this temple so to speak and they're there at the foot of the altar and they're viewed as a sacrifice to Christ they were willing to give their lives because they loved the word of God they were loyal to Jesus and fully devoted to him and they were willing to sacrifice themselves by being loyal even though it meant giving up their lives and so there it was an act of worship in doing this and so as they suffered in that way they are waiting for final justice final vengeance and they're crying out God when are you going to bring about your vengeance you might be saying that doesn't sound very Christian (laughs) wanting to get revenge what's wrong with these people I thought we're supposed to turn the other cheek and that's true that's what Jesus told us to do turn the other cheek and forgive our enemies and bless those that curse us there's no question we're supposed to do that but there is a longing a yearning inside every human soul every person for justice we know that we can't just let evil triumph. We have to stand up for what is right and good. But God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So they go to God and they say, God, when are you gonna make this right? When are you going to overturn all this evil and make your justice prevail? When are you going to do that? How long do we have to wait? And God does two things for them. He gives them a white robe, which is a sign of victory. You've been victorious because you've trusted in Me. And you were faithful even unto death. And you're victorious. And I clothe you with this white robe. You share the victory that I have. They, they're the people that took Jesus at His word when He said, pick up your cross and follow Me. Maybe they weren't crucified, but they gave up their lives to follow Him. And then He not only gives them this white robe, but He gives them a promise. And the promise is, just hold on. Just wait a little longer. There's others That need to give their lives too. And then justice will be done. They're praying. And God is hearing their prayers. I want you to know that. That even when you're going through suffering. And even when things are not going right. And when you're waiting for justice to be done. When you cry out to God. He is listening to you. And He will enact His justice in a perfect way. And at the perfect time. In verse 12. John watches Jesus open the sixth seal and he says, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth and the full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. And the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. This is a picture of not humans Human sin being used by God to judge humanity, but God now finally bringing his own catastrophic cosmic judgments upon the earth. Humans were fighting each other and destroying each other with their, their wars and famine and the first four seals. And, and they were persecuting those who are righteous and devoted to Christ and the fifth seal. But now God is saying, you want suffering, you want justice, you want judgment, here it comes. I'm not holding back. There's this horrific earthquake, the, the sun turns black, the moon turns to blood red, there's a meteorite shower that's so terrifying it looks like all the stars are falling out of the sky, everything's moving. Now, don't, don't think about, a, you know, on a, on a lazy summer night when you're laying out in the grass with your kids, maybe on a blanket and you're looking up at the nighttime sky you see a few shooting stars like that. Just amplify that, multiply that thousands and thousands of times and it looks like all the stars are falling. It's a terrifying thing. All these omens and portents that God is ready to pour out His full judgment. He's shaking Everything. It's so terrifying that the people who think they are in control, the high and mighty, they are absolutely scared out of their wits and they try to hide. Notice what he says in verse 15. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful, all the people who have the power, all the people who have the money, all the people who think they are in control and can satisfy and uh, confirm and and coordinate their own destiny and and make it complete they understand they're not in control they understand that they are going to be destroyed under the judgment of god and it says even everyone slave and free not just the high and mighty but the low and down and out everybody is scared and it says that they were They hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling on the rocks and the mountains, Fall on us and hide from us, from the face of the one who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? I mean, things are so terrifying that mountains are falling down, things are so terrifying that islands are disappearing under the surface of the water. They're being moved out of their place. This is how catastrophic all these signs and portents are. How terrifying it is. And they're crying out, we have no one to rescue us. And they are hiding in the caves. The very mountains that are falling down, they're hiding there. They can't stand to face the wrath of the one seated on the throne and the wrath of the Lamb. They understand very clearly that they're getting what they deserve because they've chosen to rebel against God. But there's no willingness to turn to God and repent. There's no willingness for them to turn away from their rebellion and surrender to Him. And they understand that it is God's holy anger. That's what the word wrath means. His holy anger against sin. God is judging that and He's judging everyone that chooses to go that way. Hide us. Who can stand before the wrath of God and the Lamb? That's a good question. Who can stand before God's wrath? The answer is nobody. Except the people who are talked about in chapter 7. Because they are able to stand before the wrath of the Lamb. Let's quickly look at this. verse 7 or chapter 1 chapter 7 verse 1 we read these words after this i saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds of the earth that no one might blow no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads and I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Sivian, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, and 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph and 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. This is one of those passages in Revelation where there's a lot of debate about who these 144 individuals are. The things that we know about them is that God has chosen them and God has stamped them with his seal on their forehead. You remember, you hear this a lot, you know, later on in Revelation, it talks about the Antichrist, the beast, and there's the mark of the beast. People get stamped on the forehead with his mark. This is almost like the anti-Antichrist mark okay something like that it's it's God's seal on these people and they're marked on their forehead the seal he's talking about is like the signet ring that a king would have and when an official document was to be authorized notarized a piece of wax wet clay would be put on the document and the ring would be stamped in it with the mark the emblem of that emperor that king that governor that general and it indicated that that document was official that it was authorized this is authentic in every way God has given this angel the power to mark these 144,000 people with God's own seal, indicating that these people belong to God. They are his property. They are his own possession, not anyone else's. The angels that are holding back the winds don't know a lot about them, but just thinking about the points on the compass and how the winds blow, these angels are viewed as restraining the winds, the winds probably representative of God's judgment and the calamities that are about to fall on earth, probably the things that were just described. And the six seals that have been opened, hold those winds back. Don't let his judgment, don't let the storm of his violence fall upon the earth. The storm of his wrath, just hold it back right now. And during this time of calm, these people are being sealed. Now, I had somebody knock on my door one time a couple years ago, and they were Jehovah's Witnesses. And as I was talking to them, just briefly outside on the deck of the house where I lived at that time, the one gentleman said, I am one of the 144,000 and i thought whoa i had no idea that i was in the presence of somebody that important and and i looked at the lady that was there with him the the trainee and i said is she one of the hundred forty-four thousand? no she's not unfortunately she's not going to heaven she'll have to stay here on earth and i thought man that's uh, sorry stinks to be you but okay anyway that type of type of thing like that you know the the thing the thing is is that there are some people that view this hundred and forty four thousand as special, ultra, super spiritual, super religious individuals, and they're the ones that get to that place of privileged position in the new heavens and the new earth. And that's what the Jehovah's Witnesses believe erroneously. Okay. There are some Christians who teach that these hundred and forty-four thousand are Jewish young men, virgins, unmarried. Uh, not sexually active, and God chooses them and makes them into evangelists to spread the gospel during the tribulation period. And that's a very common view of, of these, who these, uh, these 144,000 individuals are. You get that idea from chapter 14. There's a suggestion there that seems to possibly indicate that's what they do. But there's nothing about that here in chapter 7 that indicates that they're Jewish evangelists or that they're evangelists. It does say that they're of every tribe of the sons of Israel. And so when you take it at first glance, it's easy to say, well, these are Jewish people. These are members of the nation of Israel. And they're, they're involved in evangelizing and, and, and doing that on God's word. It, it sounds like a military census, you know, before David would go to war and other kings would go to war in ancient Israel, they'd count up how many soldiers do you have in each of the tribes of Israel? And they would add them up. Okay, we've got an army of about a couple hundred thousand. We can go out and march into battle. And so it looks like, it sounds like a military census. It looks like, it sounds like a a listing of people that are a remnant, but I think we need to be a little careful in focusing and saying that it is only people who are Jewish. Here's why. Because when we read in the scope and sequence of the entire book of Revelation, let alone the entire New Testament, we see that the church is made up of Jews and Gentiles. The only way a Jewish person ever gets saved is trusting Jesus Christ, right? they become a member of the church, right? Okay, that's that's the truth. And so in Christ, according to Galatians chapter 3, there is no Jew or Gentile. In 1 Peter chapter 2, it says, "All of you are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people belonging to God, Jewish and Gentile, people who come to faith in Jesus Christ." In Revelation chapter 21 and 22, when the new Jerusalem is introduced, The dwelling place, the permanent dwelling place of the people of God for all eternity. It's this beautiful city. You know, the golden streets, the gates made of pearl, all of this. Remember at the foundation, how it's described? There are the 12 apostles and the 12 tribes indicating the Jew and Gentile together. The church in the Old Testament, the church in the New Testament come together. Now, there are some people who say that There's nothing for the nation of Israel today that God is not working in the nation of Israel today. And that's not true. God is working in Israel today. So we're not saying the church replaces Israel. That's not what I'm advocating here. What I am saying, my understanding is, I'm not sure that when John is listening to this because he doesn't see the 144,000, he just hears them named. You're saying you're being picky. Maybe so. But he hears that there's 144,000 from all these tribes. And then it says in verse nine, and after this I looked, and this is what he saw. He saw a multitude. Why then did they name all the tribes? Why then did they name all the, why did they say 144,000? I think that's a valid question. I think it's just to indicate the idea of completeness that this is exactly the kind of army that God needs for the Messiah to do His work in the, in the end times. This is the remnant people and that number and those names and those tribes all indicate God's chosenness of all these people, Jew and Gentile alike, leading him forth to do his work during the end times. What John then sees is a multitude so large that no one can really number it from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they are also clothed in white robes. And they're waving palm branches to celebrate and praise. They're wearing the robes just like the martyrs because they also are victorious. And they're crying out with a loud voice. This is what they say. Would you just say this with me here in verse verse 10? Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You guys need to be a little more excited about that. Ready? salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It comes from Him. It belongs to Him. It is given to Him. What is he talking about? He's talking about the fact that this God rescued us through His Lamb. He has rescued these people. He has saved them. Yes, they may have given up their lives as martyrs during the tribulation period, but He has saved them. This is a reminder that God saves you and I, but allows us often to go through suffering here on earth. Grief, sickness, persecution. But He is with us and rescuing in the midst of all that because we belong to Him. He has saved us. He has won the victory that has brought about our salvation. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God saying, Amen. They agreed with everything that all those humans who had been saved by God, rescued by God, what they've just said. Amen. Ditto. That's what they're saying. Ditto. We agree 100%. Let it be. Amen. Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Just in case you missed it the first time. Let it be so. Then one of the elders addressed me, John, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And John says, I don't know. Sir, you know. I don't know. I don't really know who they are. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. How do you stand the wrath of God? How do you become part of this heavenly multitude worshiping and praising God? How do you get rescued from your own sin? From your own shame and guilt? from your own destructive habits and from the judgment of God. How do you get saved from that? You need to get washed in the blood of the Lamb. You need to put your trust in Jesus Christ. And He washes away your sin and shame and guilt. And He makes you the child of God. You become part of that family, that royal army. You become His servant and His child and you belong to Him. Therefore, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Do you know what that sounds like? Besides Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. But it sounds an awful like Revelation 21 and 22, the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, the river of living water that flows through the city, the trees of life that give forth fruit every season of the year, constant provision and nourishment and care because they are in the presence of God in his holy temple, and they will never ever be separated from him. In chapter 6, we see Jesus opening the seals. And we see history unfolding at his command. And we see him commanding that there be punishment upon his enemies. And here we see history being unfolded at the command of Christ. And Christ is commanding the protection and provision of his people. He is watching over them. He is guarding them. He is providing for them. He is protecting them. And so Jesus is in control control of history. It all unfolds at his command. The judgment and the rescue. The punishment and the protection and provision. He's in charge of it all. He's the one that makes it possible to stand and not face the wrath of God. Why? Because He took the wrath of God for you on the cross, dying in your place in my place, suffering that in your place in my place, so we could be forgiven and accepted and welcomed and rescued by the Lamb. I want to show you one last thing that makes this even more special. You can say, you know what? I've been rescued, praise God, but man, life's still hard. And I know he'll provide for me in the future, but what about my provision today? And and I know he'll take care of me today uh, in the future, but what about today? Is is God listening to me today? Does he care about me today? Look at verse one of chapter eight, because here's the seventh seal. Some of you have been a little OCD. You're worried about "When's when's this seventh seal coming? I've only heard six. When's the seventh coming? When the lamb opened the seventh seal, There was silence in heaven for a half an hour. What? I mean, one of the seals, there was a huge earthquake. Another seal, there was galloping horses. Another seal, there was persecution and martyrdom. And this seal, there's just silence, the sound of silence for about a half an hour. What is that all about? Well, certainly the idea of a dramatic pause, kind of like when you're listening to a symphony and there's a pause, And there's this anticipation of what's coming next. What's going on? You can hardly stand the silence because it's just kind of building to a climax. And that dramatic pause before the trumpets start blaring. But I think there's something else going on here. Something that you and I need to hear. This is not just a dramatic pause. This is silence where everything in the universe is quiet. So God can bend down his ear to those martyrs, to those saints, to those who are suffering. And he's listening to their prayers. And he hears them. Oh, God's omniscient. He doesn't need that. God's everywhere present. He doesn't need that. I get that. But when somebody you love is talking to you, you turn down the radio, you turn off the television, you put down the book, You walk away from that conversation so you can focus, so you can hear them, so you can listen. I'd like to suggest to you that in that sound of silence, during that half hour of silence, God is listening to his people, crying out for his help, for their protection, for their provision, for their deliverance, for the vengeance. He's listening and he's acting. That's future. But remember today that your Father in heaven is listening to you when you pray as well. History unfolds at the command of Christ. He's in control, not you, not me, not the government, not anybody else. Don't be afraid. Be bold, be brave, be, be diligent in representing Him because Christ has made you worthy to stand before the Lord fully loved, fully approved, fully accepted. The wrath of God will not fall on you if you're a child of God. It's because Christ took that wrath for you in your place. Let me pray with you now. Father in heaven, I want to give thanks to you for this time that we could be together. Uh, We've had a long morning, but it's a good morning. Thank you for the testimonies that we have heard. Thank you for your word that we have heard. Thank you for the blessing of being in your presence. And I'm asking, Lord, that you would please help us now to live with boldness and confidence as we face the future because the future unfolds at your command, Lord Jesus. Lord, I thank you that you're listening to us, that you're preparing a home for us, that you will make all that's wrong right that justice and mercy will truly flow down like a mighty river at your command. We believe that, Lord, and trust you for it. Father, now give us the courage to represent you and to not be afraid, and we ask these things all in the name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you. Thank you so much for being here today. We're gonna dismiss you now. Thank you for being part of our service. God bless you.